Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, October 5th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president is back, baby. Deluging us with an early morning barrage of reasons to vote for him. He proved he was feeling fine. Don't know if he could circle the elephant on the dementia test, but it doesn't matter. He tweeted, protect pre-existing conditions, vote. Better and cheaper health care, vote. Massive regulation cuts, vote. And about 12 others. Actually, these 15 all-cap slogans were like a real-life poll of sorts. The slogan with the fewest number of likes on Twitter was, best VA ever, 91% approval rating, vote. It was the only one with hard stats. So maybe that got in the way of its popularity. It was 100,000 votes behind Space Force vote. And Space Force vote was 100,000 votes behind pro-life vote. The president then told us that we shouldn't fear COVID. You can have COVID and still be able to tweet 401k vote. So what's to fear? He said he felt better today than he did 20 years ago. I looked it up for the record. October 5th, 2000, the Times Union of Albany reports Donald J. Trump and his associates have agreed to pay a quarter of a million dollars in fines and to issue a public apology, admitting he has deceived the state lobbying commission about secretly financing a marketing campaign opposing casino gambling in the Catskills. So yeah, 20 years ago today, Trump had government holding him accountable. Now he is the government and accountability is his choice, his option, and he opts out. Trump's doctor, Sean Connolly, ably helmed the hunt for a red state October as he bucked up the president's spirits and shut down any suggestion that there was a serious concern about a COVID-positive 74-year-old obese patient. The doctor said that Trump had all the appropriate tests, nothing to worry about, like uh, lung scans. He did a lung scan. When asked, okay, what was the result of the lung scan? The doctor said this. There are HIPAA rules and regulations that uh, restrict me in uh, sharing certain things uh, for his safety and his, and his own health uh, and, and reasons. And reasons. Reasons. It's fine. To quote Trump in full, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Just like FDR said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Although... That was the first inaugural address by the third. He was pretty clear that we should fear the Nazis. And also, even during the first polio, I think he'd have advised everyone doing everything they could to avoid polio. But you know, 
presidential leadership comes in many forms and the exact details of presidential decision making are often as unknowable as the mysteries of the human mind itself. But if I could hazard a guess as to why Donald Trump checked himself into a hospital, signed some blank sheets of paper, took a car ride and proudly checked himself out, I'd say it all boils down to reasons. My fellow Americans, reasons. On the show today, I spiel about the one thing that really actually is infuriating me about how all of Trump's surrogates go on TV and frame the fight against COVID. But first, Peter Schrock was an FBI agent who led the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections. Before that, he ran the investigation into Hillary Clinton's extremely careless use of an unauthorized email server. That was his phrase, in fact, extremely careless. The two missions were called, the Clinton email server was called Midterm Exam. The Russian investigation was Crossfire Hurricane, though Donald Trump has not in a meaningful way reaped that whirlwind. If you know Strzok's name, it's because there has been a campaign to denigrate that name by the president and his defenders. Strzok did have an affair with a fellow FBI agent on the case. He was fired by the FBI. He alleges that firing was politically motivated. He did serve his country for decades, and he did combat Russian active measures, and he is here to talk about his book, Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Peter Strzok served in the FBI from 1996 to 2018. His uh, highest official rank was deputy of the counterintelligence division. If you've heard the name, it's because he was at the center of the investigations into, well, two participants in the 2016 election. The big one looking into Donald Trump and his ties to Russia and the tentacles and tendrils thereof is accounted for in his new book, Compromise counterintelligence, and the threat of Donald J. Trump. Peter, thanks for coming on The Gist. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so I'm going to start with the big one. You are convinced, and the book lays out, often in terms that have been matters of public record, that Donald Trump was compromised by the Russians. Tell me why and how you came to that conclusion. What I'm trying to do is, and yes, that's been uh, laid out in public places before. What I'm trying to do both here with you, but as well as in the book is bring the perspective of somebody who spent 20 years in counterintelligence and talk about how we, how any counterintelligence professional viewed the means of coercion that foreign intelligence services use to gain leverage over somebody. And this is not, you know, I read a couple of articles on Twitter and a Wikipedia page and I'm an expert. It is, you know, a lifetime of doing this and watching the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the Cubans, you name it, us. I mean, the Americans do the same thing. I use this when I recruited people that you look 
for leverage on people, for their motivators. And whether that it can be money, it can be ideology, you can use literally compromising material, you know, a blackmail tape, and you can certainly appeal to their ego. And they're, you know, that, those are just broad categories, but there are any number of things. But what you're trying to do, and particularly the argument I'm making with Trump and what the Russians do really well, they will find material that can be used to coerce somebody simply because it is not publicly known. The, the word compromise is, uh, you know, is a Russian term that was developed or was assigned to this idea that if you find something that somebody has they don't want known, maybe they find it shameful, maybe they find it embarrassing, maybe it would cause them to lose power, prestige, whatever it is, if you're aware of that, and the person's aware of that, you can use that as leverage to get them to behave in hidden ways in your interest against that person's own interest, or I argue in the case of Trump against America's interest. And I go out to lay out that case. And of course, you know, in my mind, the first and foremost, those are financial levers that Russia holds over him, but it's not limited to that. No good Intel service is going to say, we've got this great piece of leverage, so we're just going to stop. They're going to seek to find any number of ways to influence somebody's behavior. So Compromat could be, and maybe people's minds go to the most salacious detail, thus unconfirmed, the so-called P-tape, which when presented with it, uh, as recounted in your book, Donald Trump very much objected to the idea of prostitutes, but didn't jump up and down and say, no urinating on a bed in my presence ever happened. But let's just put a pin in that, because the point I wanted to make is compromise could be things just said in front of a TV camera, like when Donald Trump bragged or made a claim of never having any business dealings in Russia. If the Russians knew that, bingo, that's compromise. That's exactly right. And so what you want to do is look and find those things that most motivate a person. I mean, people have argued, you know, but for, you know, if this occurred during, a, you know, his current marriage, he may not really give a damn if there's, if it exists, if there's a tape mm-hmm. of him with prostitutes or anybody else in the Moscow Ritz or wherever, you know, he might want a copy of it himself, that that isn't something that could influence him. That may be true, but that's not the point. What any intelligence service is going to do is exactly what you talked about. They're going to say, well, where is this person vulnerable? Where is the truth that is hidden that were to become known would hurt them. And certainly with Trump, I mean, look at how much he's done. I mean, he lied on the campaign trail about having no deals with Russia. He's been fighting tooth and nail to avoid giving up all his financial records, whether it's the tax information that apparently the New York Times has seen. But if you look for what Donald Trump wants to keep hidden, the first thing that leaps to mind is his financial background. Now, if you're not, say, the New York Times, but say you're the Russian intelligence service, say you can tap phone calls, say you can monitor emails, say you can recruit people and insert them in Trump's orbit to get information, you're going to be able to find ways to get to that information that Trump doesn't want known. And once you have that, you've got that leverage. But this leads me to a couple of questions. One is, given the definition of compromise that you've laid out, which is the definition, just because Trump was compromised doesn't mean that he did anything illegal. To go back to the idea of bragging, claiming that he has no deals in Moscow, but then it turns out that he does, that's legal to do. You know, we rest, we rely on the American public then to make a decision. It might not be smart. It might not be ethical. It might open himself up to exploitation. But that sort of compromise, contradictions made in public that they know the truth of, that's not a chargeable offense. Yeah. So two points to that. One, I, there there is a difference in the counterintelligence world between bringing a case within the you know four corners of a violation of a law, you know, Title 18 of the U.S. Code laying out any particular criminal 
criminal violation. That is a much higher standard to be, and this was the big you know, misunderstanding by a lot of people about what Mueller did. Mueller was not looking at the underlying intelligence of things. I mean, it played a role in the investigation that he did, but he was mainly looking, can we establish violations of law or not at this very high standard? And if we can, we're going to do it. And if we can't, we're not going to speak about it. Well, the world of intelligence and counterintelligence is huge. It's like this massive iceberg beneath this little bit of can we prove a crime popping up on top of the surface. And so all of that kind of influence, what is making people act or not act in others' interests is very much part of CI work. Now, the second point is, yeah, you might not be able to demonstrate a violation of law. And I think we might get there depending on what's in these records. But the president took an oath of office. There is this idea that he is going to, he swore an oath that he would ensure the laws of faith were faithfully executed in support of defending the United States. And so when he walks into the Oval Office every day and he refuses to push back on Russia placing bounties on the heads of American soldiers in Afghanistan, when he refuses to support nascent democracies around the world, whether that's protesters in Belarus or anywhere else, when he's moving troops out of Germany, when he's questioning whether or not we're going to honor our commitments to NATO, that may or may not be illegal, but that is not protecting the United States. That is not honoring his oath of office. And it doesn't make any sense from a U.S. national security perspective. But the concerning thing is you flip it on the other side and it is entirely in Russia's national interest. And so the question becomes, why is he doing that? And whether or not it's illegal, is that something that any American should be standing for? To this day, a line of the Trump administration is that uh, the Biden-Obama administration, that's how they say it now, opened an investigation into us. Untrue. It was uh, this person of George Papadopoulos, who was a Trump advisor. Take me, if you would, a little bit through how he came to your radar. And if it weren't for George Papadopoulos, would there not have been an investigation into a Trump-Russia connection? So I'll answer the first, the last question first. I, I think we do get there. I mean, I think there were enough concerns about things we were seeing throughout the spring and summer that we would have arrived at some sort of investigation into Russian, broad investigation of Russian interference in the election. Because remember, they were doing things in the cyber realm, direct attacks on voting infrastructure. They're doing stuff we eventually found out on social media. They had all this interaction with people in and around uh, the Trump campaign. So we would have gotten there. But what triggered it, you know, kind of really kicked it off. We had seen on the cyber side Russians doing things earlier. And, you know, the specific kickoff date to that is classified, but there's public reporting that, you know, we had been coming to a pretty good consensus by the spring of 16. And to include breaking in and stealing material from both the DNC and the DCCC. WikiLeaks releases a dump of that material in uh, late July of 2016. And that dump triggers the recollection of a friendly foreign government person who had met with a guy named George Papadopoulos, a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, back that spring. And in the spring, before any of us knew about these break-ins, Papadopoulos told the friendly foreign government, hey, look, somebody on the Trump campaign, the Russians made an offer of assistance that they had material that would be damaging to Obama and Clinton, and that they offered to coordinate its release to help the Trump campaign. And so at the time, according to the friendly foreign government, they kind of said, oh, you know, that's interesting, but didn't know what to make of it because Papadopoulos was really low level and it sounded a little outrageous. But then when they saw that actually happen, right, that WikiLeaks is releasing material stolen from the Democrats to help Trump, they said, well, God, you know, this might be actually really, uh, <laughs> actually quite relevant. And so they reached out to our, um, I can now say because it's been declassified, to folks at our embassy um, in a foreign 
uh, capital and pass this information about the contact and information Papadopoulos had given to them. And then that, within a couple of days, trickles into us within the counterintelligence division. In the meantime, Trump has, you know, made his now famous, you know, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you can, you know, find Hillary's missing emails because you'll be rewarded, uh, you know, greatly. And of course, we now also know, thanks to Mueller's efforts, that that same day, <laughs> the Russians began attempting to break into Clinton's data system. So all this is kind of accelerating and cascading right at the, at the very end of July. The inspector general looked at all of the investigations, including Crossfire Hurricane, and he did find errors in the FISA application for Carter Page. He found them to be significant and serious. You addressed it a little bit in the book, but I want to know if upon reflection, do you disagree with his characterization of just how serious the FISA application is? Do you think that the FISA process needs to be fundamentally reformed? FISAs have to be 100% right. The standard is it's all correct. That everything in there, particularly because these are ex parte, they're, they're, they're proceedings before a court where there is no adversarial challenge. There isn't a defensive. I mean, there's not when you get a Title III, but eventually those can be challenged in court if you're going to use them as evidence in a trial. Because in a counterintelligence or an intelligence manner, there isn't that opposing sort of adversarial challenge, that there's a duty of candor to the court and the standard is 100% right. That is appropriate. That is the way it's always been. And that absolutely is the way it should be. Having said that, I agree with a lot frequently of the factual information gathering the IG does. I frequently disagree with some of their analysis. You know, I'd submitted the book for pre-publication review before the IG report came out. So I had to kind of get in some detail towards the end of that. It is not a complete kind of description of my thoughts in the book because just the lag time in getting that reviewed, I couldn't write to that and get it out, get the book published. But I do think that the IG, by looking at this, highlighted some very real and important systemic issues in the FBI's FISA process. I don't think the Carter Page uh, FISA was an outlier. I suspect that, you know, in some of it, they did an initial look where they're just, again, not to get too deep in the weeds, there's something called a Woods file, which essentially just creates a log of every factual assertion that's made in the FISA. If you just check to see if that's present, you're going to find errors. Unfortunately, you shouldn't. But what the IG did with the Crossfire FISAs where they then took that and then went out and investigated like all the links to the assertions that were made in the application, all the related cases that might have developed information that was, you know, either inaccurate or rebutted it or at odds with it. And they brought all that to bear. Now, it's important to do that. And you found some of the issues that were identified in the report. My suspicion is if you do that with most every FISA, you're going to come up with potentially similar issues. I don't think the system needs to be overhauled. I do think that people need to start and address FISAs from a much greater position of rigor and tracing down information to its absolute core and continuing to do that as the FISA goes through the renewal process, however often that occurs every 90 or, or year interval. Now, people are hearing that I'm interviewing Peter Strzok. They, well, first of all, might say, oh, that's how you pronounce it. I was wondering what the Z was doing there. But the second thing that they would probably say is, oh, yeah, he's the guy that Trump always talks about as being one of the lovers. And I want to be very respectful because in the book, you talk about the pain it caused to your family. And I only want to be substantive with a couple of questions regarding the communication you had with your fellow FBI agent that you were involved in an affair with. And it's this. Looking back, and you 
lay out that the FBI allows communication on Blackberries or cell phones, texts, personal exchanges. But looking back, not just because how it happened and how it was weaponized against you, do you recognize that that was a misstep to put those thoughts uh, into the sort of forum that could one day surface and be used to discredit the investigation? Yeah, of course, I regret that. I mean, I think, you know, I I feel and I think what I try to convey in the book is, you know, just because something is allowed doesn't make it a good idea. And I think certainly, you know, just trying to sit there and say, well, I'm, you know, entitled to have my opinions and it's lawful to, you know, put that in a private communication. That's all true, but that doesn't make it a good idea. And so, you know, of course, I recognize how that has been turned and weaponized to bludgeon the work that we did at the FBI that the special counsel did. But I think it's also fair to point out while acknowledging that to also look at, you know, the other places that blame is appropriately placed and whether that's DOJ illegally releasing those texts in the middle of the night to media and telling them that they couldn't attribute it to DOJ, the way that they were seized on in a very partisan manner, in an unprecedented manner by the Hill, by partisan media, by the White House to really go after people in a, in a very personal way that has never been done before. There is you know, the idea in the law that something is foreseen and foreseeable. So had I known this would have happened? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, even if I hadn't known, it was a bad idea and dumb, but it was also legal. You know, what I'm, what I'm trying to convey is like, look, I get it. And yeah, of course I regret it. But then at the same time to say, having said that, let's keep in mind, FBI agents and government employees are allowed to have personal opinions and that this attack is really being used to go after that. It isn't so much Pete, it's If you're Kellyanne Conway and the Office of Special Counsel says you violated the Hatch Act so many times you should be fired and the president refuses to do it because it's in your favor, while at the same time he's attacking anybody in the FBI or Alexander Vindman or Marie Ivanovich or you you name it because you disagree with him, that's wrong. And that's where this, you know, the kind of the way this plays out that I'm just trying to flag, you know, yes, I get it. But let's look at this in the broader context of, you know, what I understand, but make sure we're all looking about this in in the right balanced way. The Mueller team, the investigators on the Mueller team handed over their devices and a large percentage of them were wiped clean. Do you think that that's a consequence of the lesson of Peter Strzok? No, I think a lot of that is from what I saw a consequence of, you know, kind of, again, some, some partisan folks trying to get a hold and misrepresent the record. You know, when I read that, you know, when it says it was wiped, I read a lot of that is it was wiped by the appropriate custodian who took the phone, reviewed it, saw there was nothing there, copied things that were relevant, and then wiped it, not, you know, all these people running out and wiping their stuff in the middle of the night because they, you know, had stuff to hide. You know, other than just the phone, there are other ways and techniques of capturing information that I would want to see uh, what was or wasn't there before I made any judgment about whether there's anything nefarious behind it. Is there any ongoing legal jeopardy for Donald Trump should he lose this election that stems from the stuff that you were looking at years ago? So I can't talk about the things that I might know, and I don't want to speculate because it wouldn't be responsible to speculate about things I don't know. I mean, I think, look, if you look at a lot of the things that are going on through the state of New York, those financial investigations, you know, those are clearly just straight potential allegedly criminal matters. But again, when you insert foreign powers, uh, you know, in the kind of that blurry sort of back and forth that we talk about between a foreign power and oligarchs and organized crime all blended together, 
I think just based on open source reporting, that's not an unreasonable um, question to ask. Mm. Are you a gray man, by the way? I, I was up until about two years ago. That was my goal, right? To be, to be uh, on some big uh, organization chart on a big plotter you know, printout in Moscow and Beijing and to be somewhere higher up on that org chart with just a little two-pixel fedora and you know, somebody getting yelled at because they didn't know who the hell Pete Strzok really was. Yeah. Not anymore. A gray man is a person you meet and say, oh, he was unremarkable or maybe don't remember him and... <laughs> Compromised is the name of the book, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Peter Strzok, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Great interview. And now the spiel. To me, the infuriating thing, and there's always an infuriating thing, isn't actually the Trump administration's prevarications and evasions about the president's health. If you're a David Priest on this show Friday, he said that it is not unusual for a president to try to protect more hardiness than actually exists within him. And there's good reason to do so from a national security standpoint and also at this point from an electoral standpoint. All incentives are to default towards an appearance of being fully in control. Layer on to that fact that this White House doesn't have an information shop, they have a disinformation shop, of course they're going to lie. And they're not going to lie well. They're not going to lie competently. Dr. Sean Connolly, Gaelic for Spachemin, I found out, needlessly referring to 72 hours when the first acknowledged diagnosis wasn't even 48 hours prior. I mean, you think, you might think a professional communicator would vet those words before the professional doctor would come to regret those words. But none of that infuriates me. I mean, Trump has lied so much about so much from the extent of the involvement of the Russians in the election to his plan for replacing health care to the paths of hurricanes, areas that if the truth were to be known and acknowledged, the very fact of the acknowledgement would change so much, would change perception, policy and life outcomes for millions of people. But if Trump and the ass kissers around him, ass kissers, normally a dishonorable trait in times of COVID, a potentially dangerous one, if they were all to be found out in this case or forced to admit that Trump, yes, is sicker than he's letting on, so what? Either he lives or dies. Kind of a binary. If he lives, we live with it. And if he dies, the preamble to that death doesn't really matter that much. We'd have to amend the phrase, if I'm lying, I'm dying, to... If he's dying, he was lying. But those are changes that can be made. What I'm saying is Donald Trump is probably lying, but he's probably not dying. He'll probably recover, which is what we call a Trump truth, which is when you make an uninformed prediction that turns out to have some element of truth to it. Think about all the instances of terrorism, pretty much any explosion around the world where Trump quickly weighs in. I think it's terrorism. And it turns out maybe there's a terroristic element. And then Trump says, see, I was right. No, you weren't right. It just turns out that your uninformed proclamation wasn't wrong. Like I said, none of this is what I'm infuriated about. Nor the ride in the hermetically sealed limo to wave to supporters. When Trump needs to clear protesters for a needless photo op, he relies on chemical weapons. When he needs to wave at supporters for a needless photo op, he gets into a bulletproof SUV, exposing his driver and security detail to biological weapons. See the difference there? But that's not what infuriates me. What infuriates me are the talking heads 
who are talking technically out of their heads, but really out of their collective tukai when it comes to the virus. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine on CNN's State of the Union. Anybody can get the virus. Even the president of the United States can get the virus. And so we ought to use this uh, and, and simply just, you know, learn from it. Huh? That seems pretty stupid. Even a man who eschews masks, puts his faith in quack cures, doesn't understand science, not just attends, but foments mass gatherings with thousands of people behaving recklessly. Even he can get the virus. It's like even Carl Walenda of all people might die in a tightrope mishap. So that sounds pretty dumb. This up next is positively daft. Jason Miller on NBC's Meet the Press. But here's the important thing, Chuck. There's a lot about this virus that we don't know. President Trump is arguably the single most protected person on the entire planet, and yet he got COVID. So there's a lot about this we don't know. No, there's a lot that the dishonest ignoramuses dictating the White House's internal COVID policy seem not to know. Like that testing without masks or contact tracing or an immediate shutdown after a positive result is like filling the boat raising the drawbridge, but then propping up a giant ladder right into the castle. So let's think about the president being so protected. How is the president protected? If we hear the word protected, what comes to mind? If he's the most protected, what do, what do we envision? Maybe a fence around the White House or a Secret Service agent with guns. Or maybe we've heard stories about Air Force One's anti-missile countermeasures. He's protected from the use of conventional weapons or physical force. What does any of that have to do with a microscopic virus that spreads via the mouth and noses of people that he's in face-to-face contact with. And the goal of every advisor in the White House is to get face time. If the goal were to get gun time, we might say of the president, huh, he's actually not that protected. Well, guess what? When it comes to COVID, he's not protected. The Trump campaign senior advisor being interviewed by Chris Wallace on Fox is Steve Cortez. He disagrees with what I just said. Given these precautions and given that he is probably the most protected person on Earth, the fact that he still got infected shows us that, unfortunately, uh, this virus has that kind of power, that kind of communicable ability. Look, the 200,000 dead didn't show us the virus is communicable. The 7 million infected Americans or a million dead worldwide. That didn't show us. Oh, maskless McGee over there. Captain Clorox. That's the proof we've been waiting for. And it wasn't just Republican politicians, Republican operatives extending this argument. There was former Obama Homeland Security official Jay Johnson on Meet the Press saying, if President Trump, a germaphobe, can get it, anyone can. Yeah, if an acrophobe, someone with a fear of heights, can fall to his death by stepping off a roof, I guess anyone can. Yeah, I guess they can. And that's what infuriates me. That is what infuriates me. After what should be an abject lesson in the failure of this president and much of his fellow Americans, after lax attitudes towards prevention show that the virus is more easily required, what it should be is a call, a clarion call that, you know, we got something wrong, should be an opportunity to, by example or admission, make it so that another 7 million Americans don't get COVID. But it's not. It's a retreat to the same stupidity as what landed them in the hospital in the first place, but also what landed all those people on the Sunday shows too. So I guess it's working out for them. It's an unrelenting fealty to lies over facts, to ideology over evidence, and there seems to be no end to the idiocy. The president has coronavirus right now. He is battling it head on as toughly as only President Trump can. That was Fox's interview today with Aaron Perrine, 
communications director for Trump 2020, and she is on message. Trump 2020, catch the fever. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader is back to actually producing the actual gist in all actuality. Margaret Kelly, also a really and truly gist producer right here and right now, to quote the poet, the poet, of course, being Fatboy Slim. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She is, as such, the most protected producer in the Slate Podcasts network, as Margaret and Daniel have sworn an oath to throw themselves on any projectiles, explosives, or bacteria lodged in Alicia's direction, the gist. Despite all the challenges to America, we remain upbeat, bordering on euphoric, but that could be the dexamethasone talking. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.